0: Welcome to the Extraordinary Educators Podcast. Your hosts, Danielle Sullivan, National Director at Curriculum Associates, and Sari LaBeris, Social Communications Manager at Curriculum Associates, are here to share actionable tips, best practices, and success stories to improve your classroom. Hey, everyone, it's Sari, and welcome
1: learning. back to the Extraordinary Enjoy Educators Podcast. We know there is a lot happening right Hi now. Hi, everyone, I mean, this hope is Danielle. We can provide you with some insights, tips, and best practices in breathing room from the critical work that you do every single day. We are here to support teaching and learning wherever it is taking place. And with us today, we have a very special guest from Curriculum Associates, Tyrone Holmes. So I'm going to let Ty introduce himself and then we'll dive in.
2: Hi, everybody. Uh, It's it's, Ty Holmes here. I am uh, one of the national directors for content and implementation at Curriculum Associates. I've been at CA for five years, but I've been on the uh, the publishing side of education for almost two decades, supporting teachers, supporting uh, school (laughs) districts, and supporting educational leaders.
0: Oh my goodness! Two decades—that is—that's just a little bit of time. That's, that's just not very long bit. at all. Just, just a tiny yeah. bit. Well, yeah. since you have a vast experience and if you've been working with educators from across the country, um, I know in person probably pre-COVID, but even since COVID happened and we've been you know supporting educators from wherever they are, <laughs> what are some themes or reoccurring uh, issues or the connective tissue of things that you're noticing in this time?
2: So so one of the, I guess, the sort of big buzzword that encapsulates so much is equity, right? Mm-hmm. And what I've noticed since, like, as I've traveled is, and sometimes it's, you know, going to drastically different parts of the country. Sometimes it's within, in a city, it can be within a matter of blocks, is like the striking inequity in schools and school districts, Um and every time I see this, the, the question that comes to mind for me is why? How mm-hmm. and why? Like, how did this come to be? Um, how are we sustaining this? And and what are folks doing? And it, and it really sort of, uh, what it does is it, it, it conjures up like great humility and respect for what teachers are doing day in and day out, mm-hmm. because- what they're experiencing in their lives as educators, uh, is really connected to so many other larger, uh, historical and present factors. Um, and I liken these to, um, I would call them factors of oppression. Um, if I'm getting really, really deep with it, 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 it it feels sort of like, uh, Uh, as Isabel Wilkerson talks about, like a caste system within the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I kind of noticed that there seemed to be sort of like five fingers to what I would call a a white supremacist caste system. Um, One of them is clearly finance. Uh, It's The next finger could be real estate and or housing or neighborhoods, like basically where you're allowed to live, right? Uh, Politics is a, a big one because this Like race has been all over our politics forever. Um, And I think our politicians have gotten really good at using other words to camouflage it, but it's Mm -hmm. so often been like about um, and directly connected to uh, race. And then finance and criminal justice. Like those seem to be five fingers that are uh, inextricable, like they're they're just so deeply embedded within education. and it's really hard to, once you start to look at things through that lens or once you you know take that matrix blue pill, like it's really hard to not see those factors uh, playing in everywhere you go.
0: Whoa. Let's just pause for a second. Five fingers of oppression. That is like, whoa. And I've heard you talk before about the education being one of the pillars. So what what are some things that you're seeing? What are some things in your experience? How can we start to shift our thinking, um, especially to support, to close some of those too, gaps t- Before now, you dive in, you offer a such mindset shift. What because are some things so many um, times educators can educators, do in their classrooms Not by their fault, but they just today. live in their
1: bubble of their little classroom, so, you know? And and you had yeah. the opportunity pre-COVID of traveling everywhere and just just being an observer and seeing all of this. And now that everyone's kind of retreated back to their their wherever they are, this is a time when, when it's more important than ever to really reflect and think about these things so that when you return, you know, there can be a shift.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think absolutely. And I, and I look at like, again, just my hats off to the things that teachers do day in and day out. I mean, because when you think about it, there's almost nothing more radical Than being an educator who believes that every single student who comes through your door deserves the highest quality of education, no matter what. Mm
0: -hmm. And
2: unfortunately, Mm -hmm. what makes that radical is the fact that our society clearly is not built or aligned with that understanding or belief, right? Mm -hmm. So every day, you're literally, through the act of giving your all to your students in your class, you are resisting a tide, a strong current, like a gale force wind of oppressive and separating and, you know, caste-like society. Uh, And that's a really hard thing to put, do you know what I mean, on the shoulders of anybody or any group or any individual. So our teachers are really, you know, diving in and facing that on a regular basis. So I think that what we... What I have seen and what a lot of educational leaders are talking about are uh, one, owning that, you know, education is sort of their one lane. But -hmm. those larger factors are big, like neighborhoods are segregated in the country on purpose. They didn't happen uh, by accident. There's no we have a myth of de facto segregation, which is like, hey, people just like to live with people who look like them, right? But when you really get into the history of segregation and housing after the Great Migration, like all of this was done on purpose, right? And we are uh, the benefactors, if you will, of this housing segregation and separation. And so much of it is tied around not just wanting, uh, not just sort of uh, the white supremacist, racism where people didn't want to live near Mm -hmm. black and brown folks it was also the fear of going their kids going to school with black and brown folks and kids playing together um and there's even uh uh, i mean far too much evidence to say that the the just the blatant fear of the truth of human equality Mm -hmm. people wanted to keep people separate which is why you have uh you know urban centers or suburban centers where you have these things like white flight and so forth all of this exists uh, as a result of a very well-planned and orchestrated system Uh, so embedded in the school of teachers as teachers are sort of living that radical notion of educating every single student there are practices that researchers talk about that uh sustain inequity right and Mm -hmm. they're are practices that undo inequity. And those are really, really tough and really, really nuanced, but they can be incorporated on a regular basis. Like we've seen it within uh, changes within the math classroom, for instance, and those are the classrooms that I've been focused on for uh, uh, 20 years, Um, just in the ways in which math lessons invite students into conversation, the way student work is honored, the way students' thoughts are honored, as opposed to uh, what we got at the turn of the last century was really sort of this automated way uh, of teaching where a host of examples are put on a board, students copy examples, uh, then students move to practice, they practice a lot, and then eventually students move to word problems, and the general expectation was that only some students would get it, and other students wouldn't. So we taught in such a way that we were teaching only to the kids that we believed ahead of time would actually get or understand it. And so much of that, um, at least from the leadership standpoint and from the research standpoint, has changed. And we see a lot of educators embracing the change. But of course, there are there are places where you know change is slow uh, to come. So a lot, just a lot of stuff happening. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that is that is that that is a lot of stuff. I want to dig in a little bit more with what you're talking about, the math classroom. Are there certain practices that educators could do? Because we're, what we're trying to do in this podcast is really give people some tangible next steps. So if they're noticing that, that they want to be a part of the change. And I really love...
2: <laughs> practices that sustain inequity and practices that undo. Okay.
0: The practices that undo inequity, and you really talk about math discourse. Are there other practices besides talking in a math classroom that you've seen that really help? For instance, maybe um, how do educators set high expectations, or having conversations around data. Like, what else have you seen in your travels that have well, they, made a giant impact?
2: There's so there's so much. I mean, when you uh, and today, it's really hard to talk about instruction without talking about data. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things, and we we know this, and of course, working for uh, Curriculum associations believing strongly in, of course, the the products that they create. Um, but outside of those products, it's important when you're looking at data to talk about the types of data that you're looking at and the danger of looking at data in isolation. Mm-hmm. So one of the, one of the things that has occurred that we've seen, and it doesn't matter what system of assessment or system of data gathering you're using. There's normative data, which is comparative data, right, basically compares you to a hypothetical average student. Um, And then there's also criterion-based data, like data that's based on the criteria of a standard and or grade level. Uh, So many systems um, bank a lot of their actions around normative data, comparative data, which One, again, is only comparing you to a hypothetical average student. Two, it's very hard to act on that when you don't know what that exactly means, right? Uh, Juxtaposed against a grade level placement or standard. You know, this student is behind their peers. Okay, great. I know that, right? But then what do I do if my goal is not to get them ahead of their peers? My goal is really to get them on or above their grade level. Right. So, one of the practices that I'm that I've seen is folks are really starting to dive in and focus on criterion reference data as the basis to make their plans, their recommendations, and to instruct. Right. That's been a a bit of a shift. So, educators are now, you know, more and more like on the lookout for is this data normative? Is this data criterion? Like, and then I want it to be criterion and I want to take the recommendations, if you will, from criterion reference data, because that's all about grade level. And then as I'm talking about growth against peers and so forth, I'll look at normative data, but it's important to get a, a deeper, a better, clearer view to look at both. So that's like the data part of, of what I'm seeing and, and uh, folks tying that data more to instruction. But within the math class itself, in order to get a feel for uh, sort of the evolution of what we're seeing, it's important to look at, you know, what came before. I'm a child of the seventies and eighties. Right. And I, you know, I had teachers that I loved, had great relationships with. And when I look at though the way most of the classes flowed year to year, it was pretty much a host of examples were presented. It didn't take me long to figure out, I'm talking about five, six years old that the teacher had the answers to the examples that were being presented So I could kind of choose to engage or not. Teachers would also present a lot of examples as time went on and as you grew up through the grades. And when you talk to teachers, you find like the a part of the reason they're presenting so many examples is um, that they want to give students a different iteration of the same topic or idea because they fear that if students see an iteration like that they haven't seen. Uh, For instance, if they're working with solving a linear equation. Um, And they've only seen coefficients that are whole numbers and y-intercepts that are whole numbers. When they see a coefficient that's a fraction or a coefficient that's an integer or a coefficient with a decimal, they freak out and don't know what to do, right? So that's a part of the thing that led to so many examples being actually given and stepped out in a classroom. But what a lot of educators are starting to see is that that shrinks the amount of time for interaction and the amount of time to see like are students conceptually understanding what they're doing or are they just replicating what I'm writing on the board or what's written in the book? And so some of the shifts that I've seen are instead of trying to do everything or you know go through five, six, seven, ten examples in a class, which becomes a speed writing note-taking exercise, teachers are focusing down on like one task and then asking really good questions about the task to squeeze as much conceptual juice as possible out of that one task. And that's allowing students to have entry points, right? Mm-hmm. Different entry points into a problem. If you have a complicated multiplication word problem, some students might get there by counting. Some might count by once, some might count by other numbers, but like they're getting there. They're making their way to that understanding. And the point would be for that student to also be able to analyze another way that a student accesses it that may be more grade level appropriate, that may mm-hmm. be pictorial, that may be you know procedural in nature, and see if they can see the connection, the connective tissue between their way and the others, determine which way they liked better, what was more efficient, like what do they in general think, to ask like a great... Uh, be to be asked as a student like great what if questions like what if this was broken apart this way instead of that way what would change what would stay the same like all to drive greater uh, connective tissue and greater conceptual understanding while focusing on one task it gives students time and it sets an expectation that here's the task we are really going to go all in and just go crazy and get as much as we can out of the task. So participate. Whereas the other or the older method, it was more like copy down as much as you can. Like, I don't know if you remember uh, Daniel or Sari in math classes. Like I was a student who, when I s- noticed like the teachers uh, back when overhead transparencies were the latest teaching technology, like some teachers had Really great penmanship or markership, if you want to call it that, on the transparency. And they had these pristine notes. So I would just walk in and go, hey, you know, uh, Mrs. Gamzon, or, you know, can you just give us copies of your notes? Like instead of us actually copying them down because you wrote them so amazingly, can we just have copies of them so we don't have to copy them? We can just like pay attention, right? Like those are the sorts of things that you do in classes that are based on like, speeding through as many examples as possible so that you can at least see different, you know, uh, presentations of, of specific problems in the hope that you seeing them will allow you to recognize them when you get to an assessment, as opposed to now where the understanding is that every new task requires much of you, of the student, so you're gonna engage with that new task, you're gonna use what you know, right? And you're gonna rely on the connections that you've made as you, you know, deepen your experience with these tasks each day. So that's-
1: it's so true. And everything was like a, was like a trick. Like I'm remembering when I learned, um, like fraction division, it was just like flip it and multiply. And I was like, all right, that's easy. It was like step one, step two. I had no idea what I was doing. And it might be embarrassing to say this, but when I taught even even down to third grade math or when I taught fifth and sixth grade math, I had to relearn so much because I just lacked the conceptual understanding. I was like, I know these rules, but I don't actually know why I'm doing Absolutely. them. And it's just there's so much more real life application when a child understands the why and the how, and perhaps it starts with a picture or cutting something with scissors or whatever it is. Because like, what's the point? You just, you just know these rules, but they're so abstract and, and nonsensical. It could just be anything, you know, it's, it's like what we all learned with carry the one. It seems so simple, but if you're not understanding what you're doing, it, it just messes your foundation for everything else. That's And develop. I love how you're talking about math as an equity
0: tool. I love how you've made the connection for right. educators that, the way that you're talking about teaching math, uh, approaching students, meeting them where they are, allowing them to solve it independently. The teacher is the guide, not the sage on the stage. How that can actually help students feel seen in the classroom, feel like they matter. It's a it's a shift, and it's a shift that sounds like it could really ha- help a lot more kids. And, and think about uh, it. yeah.
2: Oh, sorry. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. You go ahead. Oh, well, and think about it, too. I mean, these are teachers like they're to do this. They have to embrace their inner radical. Understand that not very long ago, it was believed that there was a small subset of the population that would understand the mathematics. And typically that subset of the population was going to be men. Right. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, they were going to be as time went on, they were going to be white males that got it. Right. Now you have an army of educators, a vast majority of them are female and they're teaching math right at the elementary. They're teaching math at the middle. They're teaching math at the high school. And they're embracing that inner radical understanding that this is a language that every human being. Right. Not only has rights to understand, but that every human being can do. Right. We have to look at the systematic way in which it's been approached, change that to open it up so that it's more accessible. And then we get an opportunity to just watch our students work and rise to the standards and measures of each grade level. And that's what we're seeing lots of teachers start to really, really embrace.
0: And how can we support teachers in doing this work? Where can they find some resources right now to do some of this work?
2: I mean, there's a a ton of resources out there. I'm going to Selfishly, right? Just say that if you're if you're into math discourse, if you're into really taking your time in a session and focusing on one task, uh, of all the programs that are out there, Ready Classroom Mathematics, right, is a program that really digs deep into this. But you can also, I mean, look no further than Ed Week. Go to your NCTM website and just literally read what's there. Read the mm-hmm. research that's there. Look at and honor the standards and the way they coherently and vertically articulate themselves up through the grades. Like, it's all about students getting deeper and deeper with really important topics. And in order to do that, like, it takes time. And that's what we need in. Uh, a classroom where some classes are an hour long, middle school, they're like 40 minutes if they're lucky. So to focus on 10 examples is a really hard thing to do. But when you pair that focus down and see student connections to one task and utilize those connections, you get so much more conceptual bang for the buck, if you will, um, Mm -hmm. you know, out of that class.
0: That is on that and on that note, um, <laughs> this has been great. This has been a little bit uh, this is a little bit longer than our normal podcast. So thanks for sticking with us. But we have a lot of resources that we're going to link in the show notes based on what Ty was talking about. We have some research papers that um, we've put out around math discourse, around culturally responsive mathematical teaching. There's a link to Ready Classroom Central where you can find some re- uh, information about Ready Classroom if you're interested. There's also really really great.
1: Yeah, and some more on the um, different types of assessments too, the formative versus normative Yeah, all of that stuff we're going
0: to link in the show notes. And I just also want to say that what Ty ended with saying is time. I just invite you to consider during this time of reimagining and rethinking all of the ways that we're teaching virtually or where students are learning, how can you carve out more time for students to really dig into the mathematics? How can you share and rethink things. And if you are coming up with things that you are doing that you want to share, please, please, please share with us. We'd love to hear what you're doing. We'd love to hear how you're reimagining mathematical conversations and how you're helping to really close that equity gap that we started the conversation with. Any last words, Ty, before we wrap up?
2: I just... (laughs) Uh, I just want to say thank you to all the teachers out there this is uh, a crazy time for many of us it seems like a complete anomaly uh, in our lives and yet we're seeing so many teachers doing everything they can to one keep engagement alive virtually but other things that are just so completely beautiful and humane like doing extra work to reach out to students who aren't showing up for virtual class, making sure that their districts has have computers and have better Wi-Fi uh, for students that live in areas where the Wi-Fi is poor, keeping buildings open even when they're in virtual school to make sure that kids get fed. I mean, this is, this is hero work, and teachers are doing it day in and day out. So uh, I just want to at least let them hear from one person. Thank you.
0: We echo that. Absolutely. We thank you every single day. Thank you, Ty, for um, sharing your thoughts on all the things. And how can people follow us and continue (laughs) to connect with us?
1: Yeah, Thank you so much, Ty, for joining us today. And you can all follow along on Twitter at Curriculum Soch, and on Instagram at my iReady. And just like Daniel said, be sure to tag us in your posts so we can see the amazing, inspiring work, the superhero work that you do every single day. And if you have feedback about the podcast, a topic of interest, or want to be a guest, please email extraordinaryeducators at com. That's extraordinaryeducators at com. Again, this is all about you. We're here for you. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. So remember, until we meet again,
0: be you, be true, be extraordinary. This podcast is produced by Curriculum Associates and is the copyrighted material and intellectual property of Curriculum Associates.